0: Today's class we're going to going to try to cover Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 through chapter 4 verse 16 and that's the fall of man and the story of Cain and Abel and actually there's quite a bit more that's relevant in the story of Cain and Abel than I realized uh, in the story. Obviously the fall of man there's all kinds of consequences that are significant for us I want to begin by reading Genesis chapter 3. I'll start reading in the beginning of the chapter, what we covered last week in verse 1. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. I'll be reading out of the the New King James. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Let's, let's uh, stop, stop right there for now. So we see that Eve is deceived by Satan. He tricks her, and she eats of the fruit of the tree that she was told by her husband not to eat of, which, which came from God. And this is the first example of temptation in the scriptures. Last week, we studied about Satan. And as David remarked, uh, many of us over the past week have been thinking about Satan, about the spiritual battle, and thinking about things we don't normally think about. And all the scriptures that talk about Satan is our enemy who's out to attack us, who's out to destroy us and the battle that we're in. And we're starting to pray once again, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us From the evil one. So I know many of us have felt much more aware of the spiritual battle that's raging around us. And maybe you feel particularly attacked over the last week by Satan. And the way Satan goes after us, it's important to study the first example of temptation because there's a lot to learn in it. There's a lot to learn from. Examples where Satan has been successful and unsuccessful in the past in tempting people. In this case, Satan was successful. There's a lot to learn from it. This is the classic temptation. The story of Eve's temptation here reminds me very much of what it says in 1 John chapter 2. Let's turn there about the temptations that we face. The threefold te- classic temptation, First John chapter 2 and verse 16. John says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but the man who does the will of God abides forever. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's the threefold temptation that goes after both our flesh and our spirits. We talked about man is, is, is body and spirit, both. And that Satan attacks both. There are some things that are more appealing to the flesh. There are some things that are more appealing to the spirit. And some things for both. So she sees that it's good for food to eat. The lust of the flesh. It's pleasant to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And it's desirable to make one wise. The pride of life to become like God. So that's what she falls to. It's the classic temptation. Satan is coming after us all the time with the same basic temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's all embodied in this one thing. The fruit looks good, tastes good, and it's going to make her wise so she'll become, she thinks she's going to become just like God. The God's trying to keep her down. So When you're being tempted by Satan, realize that Satan is behind it and he's coming after the same things. The lust of the flesh. I don't have to be looking for temptation if I'm just reading the news on the internet off in the corner of my eye there's the lust of the flesh something looks interesting click on this and you're going to get yourself you're going to fall into the black that back down into the black hole leading to the pit of hell the lust of the flesh so satan is appealing to our flesh to our appetites to our desire for physical pleasure the lust of the eyes and the pride of life all the different areas that satan is attacking us where we're... we're, we're uh, to, 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 to tempting us to hate other people to be selfish, to be greedy to pull more things in for our, ourselves or to fall into sexual sin or temptation or dive into it so uh, classic temptation, we're faced with the same thing all the time when Jesus is tempted by Satan it's the same things. he says, uh, uh, turn, this, turn these stones into bread, the lust of the flesh he says uh, if you uh, bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. It's the, the, uh, the, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's the, the same things. And so Lee, Eve leads her, sin in, her husband into sin as well. So the first question I have, in verse 8 it says, God is going for a walk in the garden and Adam is playing basically hide and seek with God. He's hiding out and God can't find him, and God's walking through the garden. Well, what do we make of this? God's going for a walk in a garden? Is this literally correct? How do we understand this? What it says in verse 8. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, verse 16, it says, God is dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. In 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 27 when Solomon dedicates the temple to God he realizes God isn't going to be living inside this temple. He knows that And he says, that's what he says in his prayer, he says, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. The God can't be contained in time or space. He is everywhere. So how in the world are we to understand this thing about him going for a walk in the garden and asking, where are you, Adam?'" What does that make? Can you make any sense of that? Is this just just figurative, poetic language, or is this really what's going on here? I'll share with you something that Theophilus wrote, an early Christian writer around the year 180 A.D. So he's within 100 years of the the lifetime of, of, of at least some of the apostles, where he talks about this. And he says... A quote from him. He says, You will say then to me, You said that God ought not to be contained in a place. How can you say he walked in paradise? Hear what I say. The God and Father indeed of all cannot be contained and is not found in a place. For there is no place of his rest, but his word, through whom he made all things went to the garden in the person of God and conversed with Adam. For the divine writing itself teaches us that Adam said that he heard his voice. But what else is this voice but the word of God, also his son? Many early Christian writers understood that places in Scripture where God appears in a form And maybe he's talking with someone, or in the case of of Adam, later on in Genesis, where he's having a meal with Abraham and and Sarah, in the story story of Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, that when God is appearing and can be seen, or Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is in the throne room of God, that it was actually the word of God or the son of God through whom God made the universe that appears. The the, the technical term for that is a theophany, just a fancy word that means an appearance of God. And uh, some examples of early Christian writers talking about that would be in uh, David Rousseau's Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs. There's an article in Theophany uh, Theophany, uh, in, in that that talks about this and other examples. The example I quoted from earlier from Theophilus was from his uh, letter to Autolycus in Ananiacine uh, Fathers, Volume 2, page 103. Now, moving on here, both Adam and Eve are ashamed, and when they're confronted by God, they both make excuses. Neither one owns up to the sin. Adam says... The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I ate. So who's Adam blaming? Eve. He's, yeah, both, both God and Eve. Actually, they're both, both good answers. He's saying, that woman that you gave me, she gave it to me, and I ate. So he's blaming the woman, and he's blaming God. Real, real uh, Not much of a spiritual leader and not taking ownership for his own sin. The woman, what does she say? Who does she blame? Um, the serpent. She blames the serpent. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So they start off by not owning their sin, not taking responsibility and casting blame. The lesson from that is obviously when we sin, it's our own fault. We need to own it and, and not make excuses and not blame God, Satan, or other people. It's our, own, it's our own disobedience to God. We knew better. They both knew better, and they didn't do it. The consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. Let's read Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. This is very significant because it's the foundation of pretty much everything else that follows. Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14. Read verses 14 to 19. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So three different consequences come out of this sin here. There are different sins involved by involved by Satan, committed by Satan, by Eve, and by Adam, and there are three different consequences. Let's look first at the consequence. To Satan in verses 14 and 15. He says the serpent will crawl on his belly. So I'm trying to figure out. Does that mean that he started off as a lizard? More with four legs or something like that? And he lost his legs. Uh, Satan, as, as we discussed in the last lesson. Satan was an angel. He wasn't, a, he wasn't an animal. Satan was an angel who fell. And here he took the form of a... Of a reptile of some sort, or entered into a reptile when he was when he was confronting Eve and tempting her in the garden. So uh, the serpent uh, is 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 condemned to crawling on his belly. Uh, and then this in verse 15 it says, "I will put enmity between uh, God says 'I'll put enmity between Satan and his offspring versus the woman and her." seed in genesis three fifteen. now this has been called by many people the mother of all prophecies that this is the first great prophecy about jesus enmity between satan and his offspring on the one hand and the woman and her seed singular in in the septuagint it says i'll put hatred between because this this passage is so significant i'm going to a read it from the Septuagint also says, I'll put hatred between you, the Satan or the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed, which is singular. He will give heed to your head, and you will give heed to his heel. Now, this to my knowledge, this prophecy is not applied to Jesus explicitly anywhere in the New Testament, but historically it's been understood as applying to Jesus for obvious reasons. Paul perhaps alludes to it at the end of Romans where he says, the God, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, he says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So there's definitely, I think of Genesis 3.15 in connection with that. <laughs> Now, he says God will put enmity between Satan and his offspring and the seed of the woman. Now, notice he doesn't say the seed of the man and the woman. Now, what's the significance of that? Why does he just say the seed of the woman? The woman was the one who was deceived by Satan commits the first sin. And he says it will be the seed of the woman which obviously Christians understand is foreshadowing the fact that Jesus would be born of a woman, not of a man and a woman. It's a foreshadowing of the virgin birth, that just as the woman had a special role in introducing sin into the world, that woman would have a special role in introducing the antidote for sin into the world. Satan brought down the human race through a woman, and he would be defeated through a woman in the end, that God would bring about a recapitulation or bring full circle justice to use the weapon that Satan used against him in the end. In connection with this, I also think about in in Psalm 91, there is something that this, this story reminds me of as well. There's a it says, you shall tread upon the cobra and the serpent, you shall trample underfoot. Uh, Irenaeus connected this, who lived around the year, wrote around the year 180, and Against Heresies, the Ante-Nicene Fathers, Volume 1, page 457, he said that prophecy tied right back to Genesis 3.15 about how, That the Messiah would crush the serpent, would tread on the serpent and crush his head, trample the serpent underfoot. It's ironic to me that in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 in the temptation of Jesus, when Satan tempts Jesus, he quotes the verse that comes right before that in tempting Jesus, the verse that talks of his own ultimate defeat, where he says... He shall give angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up. And then right after that it talks about he shall trample on the serpent. So it's ironic that Satan did not understand a prophecy that predicted his own demise and tried to use that against Jesus. Justin Martyr around the year 160 said regarding the birth of Jesus he became man by a virgin in order that The disobedience which proceeded from the serpent might receive its destruction in the same manner in which it derived its origin. For Eve, who was a virgin undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death. But the virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced her good tidings to her. And to her he has been born, to whom God destroys both the serpent and the angels and men who are like him. But works deliverance from death to those who repent of their wickedness and believe upon Him. So, you see that a wicked angel appears and deceives the Eve, but the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. So there's a there's a there's a uh, there's a parallel in what takes place there. Uh, Irenaeus said regarding this. That's in uh, the that, that quote from. Uh, uh, Justin is in dialogue with Trifo in Ammonicine Fathers, Volume 1, page 249. Uh, Irenaeus, who is overseer of the church in Lyon, which is in, in Gaul or France today, said regarding this, Thus also it was, the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosened by the obedience of Mary. For what the virgin Eve had bound fast through unbelief, thus did the virgin Mary set free through faith. And Irenaeus draws uh, further parallels. He said both Eve and Mary were virgins. It talks about, it doesn't talk about Adam and Eve knowing each other intimately until after this. They were both virgins. They both had communication with an angel. A tree was involved integrally in both stories. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and of course, the tree of the cross in the story of, of Mary that the entire human race was impacted by their obedience or disobedience. And then um, Irenaeus says, Thus as the human race fell into bondage to death by means of a virgin, so also it is rescued by a virgin. Virginal disobedience having been balanced by virginal obedience. So anyone who thinks that the story of, of the fall and the consequence of the fall puts women in a second-class light, you can see that God actually elevated the role of women to a very special place in the salvation of, of the human race as well. Amen. It says in, in, in this prophecy that Satan shall bruise his heel, he shall crush Satan's head. So the idea is that, that the offspring, the seed of the woman, singular, he would crush Satan's head, he would destroy Satan. But Satan would bruise his heel, would cause suffering. It's a foreshadowing of the suffering of Jesus as Satan handled the ultimate defeat of Satan by Jesus in this prophecy. Let's move on to the impact on the woman. So that was the first one was the impact on Satan and the, 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 the prophecy of his ultimate destruction at the hands of the offspring of the woman. The consequence upon the woman... Pain and childbirth, and, and the uh, Septuagint says, "I will greatly multiply your pain and your groaning, and in pain you shall bring forth children." So I was there for the birth of my two children, and will add nothing to that. Just that uh, that uh, childbirth uh, is a very excruciatingly painful experience. Um, second consequence is it says her desire would be for her husband, but he would rule over her, and the word desire can, in some people's minds, think, oh, her desire will be for her husband. She'd be attracted to her husband, but her husband rule over her. I've heard that explained that way before. In the Septuagint, I'll, I'll read what it says there. It says, your recourse will be to your husband. Or it could be translated, you will turn to your husband or you will submit to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the idea of the, the, the desire there is not... Is not attraction. It's actually parallel to what it says in Genesis chapter four and verse seven, where it says, "In talking to Cain, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it." So it's the same. The same construction as in Genesis four seven. Not mm-hmm. not attraction, but it's perhaps perhaps a desire a desire to uh, turning to her, or or it may have to do with control rather than, than attraction. So the relationship between man and woman is changed here as a result of the fall. Before the fall, she was man's helper, and now it says that he would rule over her. So question, here's the second question in this, in this lesson today. What it says here, the consequence of the fall, that, that your desire be for your husband, he will rule over you, was that changed by Jesus? Was that changed under the New covenant? Was that superseded by the cross? Yes or no. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I remember a few years ago I was teaching this. I was, asked, I, asked, I was teaching the class on Genesis and I asked the question to a large group of, of uh, college students. And the room got really quiet at that point in time. Nobody wanted to say. First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul says, Let a woman learn in silence and with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with (coughs) self-control. Let's back up here. Paul says that a woman needs to learn in silence and submission. In the church, a woman can't teach or have authority over a man. And then he gives two reasons here. He says, Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's the first reason. And the second reason he gives, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, first thing, Paul ties this back into Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. This has nothing to do with local culture or custom. This is universal this is foundation, foundational to the creation of the human race and, and the first man and woman. It starts from there, according to Paul. Now, he says Adam wasn't deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. Now, Paul, are you being fair here? Adam sinned too. What do we make of that? Is this, is this being unfair, uh, this requirement here? Well, in Romans, Paul talks about because Adam sinned, that all of us are bound over to death. So he's not pinning everything on Eve here. But he is saying that Eve was Adam was disobedient. Adam knew what he did was wrong. But he says Eve was deceived, not Adam. Meaning Eve, as I would understand it, Eve... Actually, believe the lie of Satan. You eat of this fruit, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. That Eve was deceived and believed that. Adam just disobeyed God. So, both were guilty of sin, but the sin wasn't exactly the same. That's how I, I put it together. Now, Let's think about what the New Testament says about the role of men and women. This is one of the politically incorrect, I mean, here we are in Boston. Can you think of anything more offensive to people than what Paul says right here? But he bases it on the creation and the fall. It has nothing to do with his local, local culture. So according to Paul, this wasn't changed by the New Covenant, this, this still carries forward. Many things change, but some things don't change. Children still have to obey their parents. That hasn't changed. And wives still have to be submissive to their husbands. And men are given the responsibility for spiritual leadership in the family and the church. Those things weren't changed by Jesus. They did not change at the cross. Another passage that talks about different roles of men and women is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the passage on head covering. And there Paul says in verse 3, 1 Corinthians eleven three, he says, the head of every man of Christ and the head of woman is man. And then he gives the reason. In verse 8 he says, man is not from woman, but woman from man which goes back to Genesis chapter 2. He says, Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. In 1 Corinthians 11, 9, which also goes back to Genesis 2. So Paul says the whole teaching for head covering, according to Paul, has nothing to do with the fall. It has to do with the creation of man and woman. That, That the head of... The head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. It has to do with the order of the universe, and it has to do with creation, that woman was made from man, and woman was made to be the helper of man. It has nothing to do with the fall, according to him. So again, that goes back to Genesis chapter 2, has nothing to do with local custom. And then 1 Corinthians 14, it says, uh, Paul says in verse 34, he says, Let your women keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. They are to be submissive, as the law also says. Where in the law does it say that women have to be submissive? Obviously, it's Genesis chapter 3. That, that the, in, in the the consequence of the fall to Eve is that your desire be for your husband; he will rule over you. So, so he—that's he, obviously tied back to Genesis chapter three, based on what Paul says in Timothy. So, the consequence on women that has carried through even after the time of Jesus and the cross—that Jesus did not, Jesus did not change that—and Paul ratified what it says. Now, this isn't a license for men to be. Uh, men, men are to be uh, considerate as they live with their wives or to, 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 to live with their wives in an understanding manner. Peter's very clear about that. That uh, and Paul says in Ephesians that men need to uh, be presenting their wives as a radiant bride. That, that men are to love and lay down their lives for, for their wives. That men are to be spiritual leaders. That if women have questions, their husbands should be the, the ones who are prepared to answer the question. They shouldn't be Like Adam was uh, basically deserting his post of leadership that he was given. So, the consequence of the man is that he has to step up and be the spiritual leader in the household and can't can't leave a vacuum there. Consequence on Adam and his descendants Genesis 3 17 to 19. Hard labor and toil and life. Now, interesting to me is Adam isn't cursed, the ground is cursed. Some of the early Christians pointed that out to say Satan was cursed, but Adam was not cursed. It was the ground that was cursed. So God curses the ground and he says, no more just wandering around the garden, picking the right fruit off the trees. Now you're going to have to toil. It's going to be work. And the second, second consequence is death. You came from the ground and you're going to return to it. Now, Eve may have sinned first. She may have been deceived. But we are all descended from Adam. The entire human race is descended from Adam, including, obviously, Adam himself. Adam could have said, no thank you to Eve. He could have said, I'm sorry, but I take my direction from God, and I'm not going to do this. But he didn't. It was his sin that doomed the entire human race or that condemn the entire human race. Doom maybe be too strong of a word. Uh, but this whole question of why do we die, why do people die, it goes right back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, Methodius is writing around the year 290, and he gave a, a beautiful example I want to share with you about why it's necessary for us to die. He used an illustration why, why, do, why we don't just live forever. He compared it to a story, he said, imagine there is an artist, an artisan who creates a beautiful gold statue, which is later mutilated by an evil person. So the artist decides to melt down the statue and remold it to restore its original beauty. And then after giving that example, he goes on, and I'm going to quote directly from him. He says, Now God's plan seems to be similar. Upon seeing man, his most beautiful work, corrupted by envious treachery, he could not bear to leave the man in such a condition. For he loved man and did not want man to remain blemished forever and carry blame for all eternity. So he dissolves man again back to his original materials. Mm -hmm. In this way, by remolding man, all of man's blemishes can waste away and disappear. So the melting down of the statue corresponds to death and the dissolution of the body. And the remolding of the statue corresponds to the resurrection after death. That's Ante-Nicene Fathers, Volume 6, page 365. So it's a beautiful picture of why we die so that we can be restored to our original beauty and that the sin and the corruption won't continue. So I mentioned before in Romans chapter 5, that the bad news of death through Adam is counterbalanced by the good news through Jesus, the second Adam. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. I'm going to uh, read some selections from, it's a long passage, I'm going to read selections from verses 12 to 19. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And later on he goes on to say, Adam is a type of him who was to come. And continuing, for if by one man's offense many die, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace by one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. Continuing, if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then at the end, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now, important to note that he says here in the beginning, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We bear responsibility Death spread to all men because all men sinned. So it's a a consequence that he he brought sin into the world, but then we took it forward from there. That Jesus is the second Adam. It's a restart. It's a do-over of the human race. That just as... Adam's disobedience bound us to death through the obedience of Jesus and our obedience following that we can be led to righteousness. Uh, Tertullian uh, makes a connection here about some parallels and I'll throw these out for you here. This is something I would not have thought of. He said that in Genesis chapter 2, remember Adam is put to sleep and Eve is created from Adam. He says, Adam's sleep foreshadowed the death of Christ because during that time from the wound inflicted on his side might in like manner as Eve was formed be typified of the church, the true mother of the living. So think about that. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. That's an interesting connection there. He says he was put to sleep and it was a wound in his side by the rib out of which came the mother of the living. And the church, of course, is described as the bride of Christ. So uh, obviously it uh, it makes me think of a lot of scriptures that talk about the, the bride coming down and the bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5, things like that. So continuing on, the expulsion from the garden. Genesis chapter 3, we'll read verses 20 to 24. And Adam, called his wife name, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the law of God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, he placed cherubim at the east Of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, because of the sin, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, and there was an angel guarding the way so they could not get back in and eat of the tree of life and live forever. Jesus gives us some encouraging news in Revelation chapter 2 in verse 7. He says, To he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That is. If we overcome in this life, if we overcome Satan, if we overcome the temptations, if we make it to the end, faithful to God, Jesus said, I will give you to eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. So we can get back in to the garden and eat from the tree that Adam and Eve were prohibited from eating from, which is good news to us. Story of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4. Start reading in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time it came to pass, Cain brought forth an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out, out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone find him and should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So two sons, and Cain was the first son, Abel is the younger son of the two. It says that Cain farmed the land, and he brought the fruit of the harvest to the Lord. Abel was a shepherd and brings the firstborn of his flock to sacrifice. Here it says the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he didn't respect Cain and his offering. Well, why not? What's the problem with Cain's offering? Well, people have come up with all kinds of different reasons. Well, he didn't like it because it was just a plant. It wasn't an animal because he likes animal sacrifices better or because his heart wasn't right the way he did it. Different ideas. Uh, I checked it out in the Septuagint, and here's what it says. It says, Did you not sin even though you brought it rightly, but did not divide it rightly? What does that mean? I'm not not sure. Maybe it wasn't what he brought, but the way he brought it, or the way he prepared it, the way he divided it, or maybe it was his heart. It's, It's hard for me to really know for sure what the problem was. But whatever it was, it says, he, Cain got angry and his countenance fell. So he got discouraged. He got depressed. Now God says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? So whatever Cain did that was wrong, the Lord felt that Cain knew what he had to do to make it right. That he'd done something wrong and if he did what was right, then he would be accepted. So whatever it was, He was doing something that deliberately he knew was wrong according to the Lord. Now, there are many things that cause people to get angry or discouraged or depressed or downcast. And this is not one size fits all. But speaking for myself, if I am down, usually... The first place that I need to look is to ask myself is there something in my life that I'm doing that I know is wrong whether it's laziness or falling into some sin or some sin in my heart it's the first place when I am when I, when I am feeling terrible or rotten instead of looking elsewhere to ask myself the question That God asked Cain, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? Is there something in my life? Is there some plank in my eye that I need to deal with? So I'm not saying that this is the source of all people getting depressed or or, or downcast, but that's that's a good first place to look. Instead of repenting, what does Cain do? He kills his brother. That's right. He resents his more righteous brother... And he ends up killing him. Now, I can, there are a lot of examples where people killed people who were more righteous than they were because they resented them or they tried to kill them. I think of the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis, for one. Or Joseph, the people, people who resent somebody who's more righteous than they are. Moses faced that. David faced that at the hand of, of, of Saul. And Jesus obviously faced that, too. So a lot of times if someone is being righteous, other people around them that don't want to repent get angry, resent them, and want to kill them. This is a this is a, an ancient story in, in Scripture. So after murdering his brother, Cain is confronted by God. He says, where is your brother? Cain lies and says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And, and the word there is the same word that's used for like a prison guard. So he's saying, am I, am, I, am, I, am I his warden or something like that? Am I am I his prison guard? Am I is this my job, my responsibility? So he's he's getting very disrespectful with God and he also lies. And then God says something is very interesting. He says, The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now The voice of his blood is crying out. Is this speaking literally? Or is it speaking figuratively? What's going on here? How are we supposed to understand that? Um, We'll we'll just just, just pause that for a second and, and look and say, what are the lessons we're supposed to learn from Cain's life? We'll go back and look at Abel's blood in a minute. One thing that we need to learn from Cain's life, there are actually some important lessons here. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. Very important lessons for us from the story of Cain and Abel. We need to make sure that we connect with them. 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do you resent somebody who's more righteous than you are or find, try to find a way to tear, tear them down or, or, or resent them in your heart? Hopefully you don't, but it maybe sometime you're tempted to do that. Somebody who is uh, more righteous in some area of life than you are. Maybe they're more hardworking and not as lazy. Maybe they pray more. Maybe they have more faith or they're more fruitful or whatever. Maybe there's, there's some aspect of their life. Is your tendency... Is there something inside you that wants to resent that rather than imitate that and, and 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 embrace that and hold that up? If so, that's part of the problem that Cain had in his heart. And we're called not to do that. We're, we're to love our brothers, including those who happen to be more righteous than we are. So he says he... He murdered him because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. It's as simple as that. And then continuing in verse 14, down verses 14 to 17. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So starts off with the idea of loving your brothers. Don't resent your brothers. You need to love your brothers. You need to lay down your lives for your brothers. And even if you see that your brother has some need... And you have the goods of this world to give it to them. So we need to love our brothers and be children of God, not be children of the evil one like Cain was. In Jude, in verse 11, it warns the Christians of ungodly people who will creep into the fellowship unnoticed. He says, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. So Cain is also a figure that's used of people who are, who are a part of the kingdom of God who, who go bad, who go, who, go, who go south spiritually. Lessons from Abel's life. In Hebrews chapter 12, Christians are admonished to live lives that are devoted to, very important chapter, to righteousness, to peace with one another, and to holiness in Hebrews chapter 12. It really captures what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And then the Hebrews writer says, we have a greater and higher calling than those who lived under the old covenant did. He gives some examples. And one of them in Hebrews 12, 24, he says, we now have the blood of Jesus that speaks better things than the blood of abel abel's blood blood cried out from the ground maybe it's figuratively maybe it's literally i don't know what did abel's blood cry out the the old song says abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies but the blood of jesus for our pardon cries So it says, we have blood that's, that's we have the blood of Christ that's crying out on our behalf. Now, Abel's blood, maybe it was crying out accusation, maybe it was crying out for vengeance or for justice, but it was crying out in the face of the crime that had just been committed. Now, Jesus refers to Abel, the first martyr, as a righteous man. Very important. Matthew 23 and verses 34 and 35. Jesus is addressing the hypocrites, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And he says to them, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That may come on you all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. There are a lot of people out there who teach that the fall of mankind was absolute. That after the fall, people were totally depraved. This is one of the cardinal points of Calvinism, the total depravity of man. That when man fell, it was total. We can do nothing good. And that so the only way that we can be saved is God reaching down and and arbitrarily deciding That he's going to save us because there's no good that's left in us. Jesus destroys that argument by saying all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel. Jesus says that Abel was a righteous man. In Hebrews 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 4, in in the hall of the heroes of faith. It also refers to Abel as being righteous man. In, in 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 what he did, because it says it says there by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, testifying of his, his gifts. As and as and through it, being dead he still speaks. So, it's the, same, the same the same picture there that it says that. Abel, in some sense, is still speaking. What does that mean? I'm not sure, figuratively or literally, but his blood crying out from the ground. It says that, that his blood still speaks in some sense. So in Hebrews, and it says here, Jesus says here that he was a righteous man. Well, now wait a minute. Doesn't it say in the Bible, in places like Romans chapter 3, where Paul is quoting Psalm 14, that there's no one righteous? Or Isaiah 64, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Doesn't it the Bible teach that there, is, there are no righteous people? What are we supposed to do that? What does Jesus talk about in Matthew 23? The word that's used for righteousness in the Old Testament, in, in, in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, is used in, he's, here. He's quoting from Psalm 14 in the, in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, in, in Romans 3. Very common word, it means to be just or to be righteous. And it says that Abel was a righteous man. Jesus says that, Hebrews writer says it. Noah in Genesis chapter 6 is described as a righteous man. About Job it says he is a man who is blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. In Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. Ezekiel 18 and Psalm 34 talk at length about people who are living righteous lives. When Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he means, like, just like in the Old Testament, like in the examples of Abel and, and, and Noah and Jonah, that we need to actually be living lives of obedience, living lives of faith. Certainly we can't do anything without Jesus, that he is the vine, we are the branches, without him we can do nothing. But the Bible is not talking about when we're called to be righteous and live righteous lives, we're we're called to be living in the footsteps of men like Abel. Now, Abel's martyrdom inspired early Christians who were facing severe persecution, even at the point of death. Cyprian, writing around the year 250, said, Beloved brethren, let us imitate righteous Abel, who initiated martyrdoms. For he was the first to be slain for righteousness. Echoing what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23. And I'll close with some, par- some, some parallels between Abel, the first martyr, and Jesus, the ultimate martyr. He was a righteous man. He was a shepherd. He offered the blood sacrifice, the firstborn of the flock, and a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. He was martyred, murdered by an envious brother or brothers who resented his righteousness and who did not want to repent. And his blood still cries out. Mm. Amen.